So today we have a special guest. His name is Jarrett Stepman, and Jarrett is a friend of mine. He's also quite experienced in the podcast world. He's the uh, podcast host uh, as well, co-host of the podcast The Right Side of History, and he's also the author of the book The War on History. So uh, he is a seasoned veteran of talking about history and you're you're a fellow history nerd, just like I am. So uh, I think we we also kind of run in the same circles. So it's uh, we've been talking about having you on the podcast here. You've been uh, someone we've targeted. So uh, it's good to have you on here. How are you doing? I, I'm doing very well. It's it's good to finally be on your show, Richard. Uh, it's it's definitely my pleasure uh, to finally be on, be able to talk uh, talk a lot of history with you. Yeah, exactly. So. Well, uh, obviously, this is an election year, and every four years, we Americans have this crazy process to choose a citizen, one of our own, to lead our country for the next four years. This year will be our 59th presidential election, and we believe, uh, just as we've said throughout this, this podcast, that history has a lot to say and offers lessons for things that are going on right now in the world. It's not something where you can mine specific answers, but it's something that you can get wisdom from. And so that's why we love talking about it and talking about elections and what previous elections have to offer. And one topic I wanted to talk about, uh, it's related to things that have just happened, the selection of a vice president. And that's always a very hotly anticipated uh, event during elections. And selecting a vice president is always fascinating to me because it's not an exact science, right? Uh, There are different ways of thinking of who you should select as a vice president. And we've seen examples of nominees, presidential nominees, selecting their running mates based on geographic balancing, based on ideological balancing. Sometimes they'll double down and, and go for kind of the same type of person as the presidential nominee. We saw that during Clinton and Dole and Clinton and Gore, rather, two Southern moderate candidates of their day. And uh, there's a lot to going into choosing a vice president and a lot of questions, uh, such as, will this be someone that the president can work with? Uh, and if is this person ready to be president? Uh, there's a lot of awkward situations with presidents and vice presidents. Quite frankly, there have been a lot of miserable vice presidents. Uh, John Adams once said a vice president uh, as your vice president, um, you could be you are nothing, but you could be everything. Uh, you're not as you're not as important as the president, but one day you could be the president. So, Jarrett, a uh, question for you. We could talk about this. Um, but first of all, does the vice presidential choice matter? Do people vote based on I like this vice presidential choice, so I'm, I'm more likely to vote for this president? What do you think? What does history say? You know, I would say ultimately at the end of the day, people are voting for the person at the top of the ticket, that the vice presidential choice has rarely ever been the decisive factor as far as what direction an election goes. People are looking at uh, the guy at the top of the ticket. Unfortunately, sometimes the vice presidential spot uh, is an afterthought as far as actually taking the position in office. A lot of those considerations that you're speaking of, the, the regional balancing, the ideological balancing, uh, the unification of a party, which is often uh, one of the primary drives of bringing on a, a vice president onto the ticket. I think that's a big part of how the selection process has worked in the past. Not so much that 
it's necessarily going to be the deciding factor for undecided voters one way or another, but it's a way to secure large parts of a potential base of the party to say, you know, we have full confidence that this ticket is going to represent our views and that they're going to be heard in the White House. I think that has been uh, very important, but I think a lot of the time, frankly, it hasn't been the determining factor. Now, of course, it depends on the presidential candidate. It depends on the year, I would say, there have been decisive vice presidential picks and some that I think turned out maybe not not so good in the long run, too. I mean, I, I really think about uh, Abraham Lincoln's choice of, of Andrew Johnson, I think was quite a dramatic one because he, he booted his former vice president, Hannibal Hamlin, who was a Massachusetts, uh, very you know staunch Republican, had been a former Whig, uh, very anti-slavery, was a part of Lincoln's ticket. Hamlin was actually dumped from the ticket because it wasn't seen as like, well, he's not going to win any votes. We already have secured this this section. So we need to really we need to shore up uh, somebody who's from a border state, maybe somebody who's a little different. So they picked Andrew Johnson, a former Jacksonian Democrat who had been loyal to the union, who had been a governor of Tennessee when the state was basically breaking apart from the union. And it was a way to unite the ticket on basically a pro-union ticket. Of course, that ended up being a whole lot because very soon thereafter, President Abraham Lincoln gets shot. Andrew Johnson becomes president of the United States and ends up in a battle with the wing of the Republican Party uh, in the chaos that ensued there. So um, he, I would he say went from as, he went from being nothing to being everything, as John Adams said. <laughs> very much everything at a time of, I think, incredible consequence in the history of this country, which many of these vice presidents have become. I think it's really incredible. I think even the idea, the concept of the vice presidency, taking that position of the president is something that we kind of take for granted. I mean, there wasn't even a clear idea of how this process would work. I mean, the very first vice president to take the job, uh, John Tyler, he just kind of took the job. After William Henry Harrison died about a month into office, nobody really knew what was going to happen? I mean, they weren't sure. Well, do we have to have another election? Is that how this is going to work? And he basically just took up the, the job and responsibility of being commander in chief. He took the job. Now, of course, he ended up alienating himself from the rest of the party. He actually got himself booted out of the Whig party uh, for, for a lot of different ideological reasons. But I think even the concept that the vice president will simply step in when something happens to the president that wasn't exactly a clear cut. I think it was actually, to a certain extent, a precedent set by John Tyler, which ended up being sealed in history. And then, of course, you get the problems. What happens when the vice president takes over? And he doesn't have a vice president. You know, How do you deal with that process? And we've had to learn these things throughout our history. But uh, the, the vice presidency has, has definitely at times been negligible, uh, to say the least, where, I mean, I think most Americans, there are a lot of vice presidents in our history that couldn't pick them out of a lineup. I think there's just there's this great quote from actually Woodrow Wilson's vice president, uh, Marshall, who said that there were two brothers. Uh, one was washed out to sea and one became vice president. Both were never heard from again, uh, which I think right. is somewhat amusing, given that Wilson himself had a, basically a health crisis at the end of his presidency. And I mean, was basically on death's doorstep. He very much could have been uh, everything in that scenario. But uh, the history of the vice presidency is one that I think has gone back and forth. We've had consequential ones. We've had negligible ones who've kind of disappeared from the pages of our history. Uh, but nevertheless, the choice is often very much consequential, especially if something were to happen to the president. So as you said, uh, a vice president 
could end up being president and having a huge impact on the country and the world. You think of people like uh, Lyndon Johnson and Harry Truman, Richard Nixon. Um, how often do you think do presidential nominees really consider, oh, I really need to choose somebody that's ready for the job? And and you think of throughout history, vice presidents are often chosen for political reasons. How often do you think that factors in the in those decisions? Uh, when you look through history, are there clear cases of where that was a factor or where that was actually ignored? Uh, and, and I ask that question because it can be unsettling sometimes to think that a vice president is chosen. Of course, the nominee will say, oh, the per- I chose the person because he can do the job, he or she. But then in reality, it might have just been political considerations in the first place. I think more often than not, it has been political consideration. Now, the very competency factor may be that political decision. It may be that a president has specific concerns. I mean, maybe you have an older president. Maybe you have, uh, you know, there there are, con- there are considerations that are, can be both suffice where it comes to the competency of the person to actually take hold in the office and the political. You know, how are we going to convince the American people that this person should be commander in chief? But how can we trust that the next one in line is going to be able to fulfill the responsibilities of office? But I think we've often seen that a lot of choices have been simply to secure a party's nomination to secure you know the one candidate or another and sometimes it has led to somewhat disastrous results i mean i would i mentioned earlier john tyler i mean john tyler was put on a whig ticket along with william henry harrison at a time where you know whigs that was really sort of a, a newly formed party in opposition to andrew jackson rose to prominence won the 1840 very dramatic election finally thought that they had their chance. This is, you know, we're going to push through the American system, which was a kind of national system of, of roads and tariffs and things like this. William Henry Harrison, the man leading that ticket, dies almost immediately. The man who takes his place is not a conventional Whig. Uh, he is a guy who is essentially of the John C. Calhoun you know, nullification, anti-Andrew Jackson, but not exactly in line with most of the other kind of national Whig policies. So he ends up battling with his own party, uh, for years, gets himself booted out of the party and causes immense chaos uh, for the Whigs, for the system, and of course, you know, ends up with you know the Democrats taking back control uh, in the next election. It, it was a complete disaster uh, for the Whig Party, and the Whigs, for whatever reason, seem to have a particular challenge with this. I think there was an old saying, you know, you know, save us from Whig vice presidents. I mean, you know, it would seem to be that the mm-hmm. Whigs just had really terrible luck, where you had multiple presidents who died in office, William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor, uh, who immediately had their successor take over and didn't they weren't necessarily as wig do as, the... Right, they weren't as wig as they hoped, right? Right, exactly. And I think that has been a continue. And even, the, you know, the, obviously the Andrew Johnson comparison, too. This is a man who was chosen because he unifies the country uh, because he's a unionist. But what are his policies regarding civil rights? What are his policies on this or that? You know, once he becomes president... He's the guy in charge. The idea that he's simply going to be a creature of the party has typically not been the case. Typically, when presidents achieve that office, they say, well, you know what? Now I'm in charge. I'm in control of this thing, and it's it's going to be my way or the highway. I think that's often the case, and that's that's created a lot of tension for political parties. So basically, the that party would have been better served to have thought about that in the first place before they just ran with kind of the political considerations. 
Absolutely. I mean, again, these are these are tricky things because a lot of the time it doesn't it doesn't matter at all. It's simply you're trying to secure one wing of the party. You're trying to gather political support. The the election itself seems to be much more important. Uh, and maybe you're doing it also to essentially you know buy off parts of the party. Parts of the party are not really particularly happy, especially when you talk about 19th century American elections, where there's much more important to have the parties. Uh, political backing, a little less so, I think, in the 21st century, uh, where you don't have to necessarily court party elites to secure a nomination. But in the 19th century, I think it was particularly important to be able to simply secure people's support uh, behind closed doors, secure that support at the convention. So it may seem bad, and it, it, it certainly turned out poorly in the end, but you can see what the rationale was for choosing some of these vice presidential candidates. It made a lot of sense until... Something happened to the president. So uh, there, there's an analogy and, and a quote that sums up the vice presidency that I always thought was um, re- revealing. Uh, the first is the analogy that the vice president is like the boosters on the space shuttle, that the boosters are necessary to get the space shuttle into space, just like a vice president is necessary to get a president elected. But then once the shuttle gets gets to space, they dispose of the boosters and the boosters are useless when it's actually in space. Not they're they're not even part of the shuttle anymore. And so that being kind of a measurement of the futility of the vice presidency. And for vice presidents like Lyndon Johnson, that was miserable, right? They go from being one of the most powerful men in the country to just kind of uh, an afterthought. And the other great quote I always remember about the vice presidency is from John Nance Garner, FDR's vice president, where he says, and I'm using the sanitary version of this, the censored version, which he said, the vice presidency isn't worth a bucket of warm spit. And I've always thought that that was, it kind of goes with the the Thomas Marshall, you know, the two, the boy that went to sea and the boy that became vice president. It kind of describes how difficult that job is. Yeah, it really is. Of course, you know, there's there's now another element to this where modern vice presidents, certainly in the last part of the 20th century, it's now somewhat seen as a stepping stone to the presidency itself. I think that's a, that is a more modern thing. I, it, in the 19th century, I think it tended to be that secretaries of state tended to be seen as like the next guy in line. If this presidency is actually going to be successful, this is going to be the president's so-called third term in office. I think we're definitely seeing that mentality, this idea that, okay, he's the first guy up on the bench. If this all works out and we've got a chance, he's the next guy in line. He's going to be the guy that the party selects. And I think that that has been sort of true. I, I think it, when we've seen a successful two-term presidents, the, the vice president is sort of seen as that next person in line. I don't think that was true earlier in history. In fact, a lot of vice presidents, they came and went, they disappeared. They weren't seen as active participants in the White House at all. Uh, you know, they performed their their basic duties in the Senate. But the Secretary of State, who was very active, especially when it comes to uh, a very important job that is seen by most as the job of the president, which is dealing with foreign policy and a lot of those issues that are the most critical for the president to be good at, the Secretary of State was seen as uh, the next guy in line. Uh, that's changed now. I mean, now the, the vice presidency is almost kind of like a, a, a bench spot. He's the first guy up on the bench ready to go into the game. Uh, if there's actually victory or there's success for the presidency. Uh, and so I think that's been a big part of modern politics and, the, and some of the transition for how we see the vice president's role. Right. So one thing I've always observed just to look at this more broadly is, the you know, Americans, we have this very long 
process of electing our president. And part of that is, I mean, we've we had this system that the founders gave us, and it's it's a pretty short section of the Constitution, Electoral College, and it has the different rules about how that plays off. And on top of that system, you have what we've created. We've had political parties, and those parties create primaries, conventions. We've added the political debates between the presidential, vice presidential candidates. And it's very interesting to describe this system to someone that's not from the United States. And describing the Electoral College to someone that's not from the United States, or describing the whole primary process and all of these things. Now, Sometimes people complain about the system. They say, you know, some people say that the Electoral College is outdated. Some people aren't happy about the primaries or anything like that. When you look at that system and how it evolved from what the founders envisioned to what we have today, do you think that it's do do you think that that system is something that ensures is this the best system that we could have in your opinion? Is this the best system that Here's the most powerful person in the world. We're choosing someone to be the most powerful person in the world. Is this the ideal system? Is there a better system? How does this compare to what the founders had originally thought of? What What's your take on that? I, I honestly think it's it's about as good a system as one could create for the United States in particular. I think our unique system, our electoral process that was developed during the Constitutional Convention has evolved since the time of its creation. There's no question about that. It is not the same one that existed in 1800, but it has served the American Republic that has grown enormously since its beginning remarkably well. I think it's something that's underrated in American history, uh, just how stable our process has been. I mean, this was something that has undone civilizations, republics throughout time. I mean, this is something that, that frankly, the, the Roman Republic and then empire never really got right. I mean, that, that is something that really undid them because they could never figure out, even when they transitioned to an imperial system, how do you deal with that line of succession? How do you choose the guy who comes next? Now, medieval Europe often came up with the idea of, well, we'll just have, you know, the, the kingdom go from the father to the son. And, and you know, that in all is from, because that was to a certain extent an innovation on a previous system where an emperor dies and, well, who takes his place? Is it to the strongest? Is it to the next in line? So these things have really bedeviled, I think, even free free countries, so-called free countries through time. The American founding fathers, I think, worried greatly about how we're going to create a process that is regular, that is stable, that, you know, where the American people always feel like they can appeal to ballots instead of bullets, that you won't have a civil war anytime there's a, there is a transition of power. And I think it's been rather remarkable. I mean, going back to the 1800 election, which I think is one of the most important in our history in which, I mean, for the first time in our history, really, I think pretty much all of human history, you had one political party is is kind of uh, primitive as the parties were at the time of Federalist Republicans, maybe not like a modern party, but you had really one faction replace another without devolving into violence and civil war. It's a remarkable thing that it went from simply ballots, you know, won the day rather than just it immediately going to civil war, as it has for countless other civilizations and people through history. That's why Thomas Jefferson's this inaugural address when he says we're all Republicans, we're all Federalists, you know, that had a lot of meaning. Didn't mean that he was going to, you know, support Federalist policies uh, or that he, he liked Federalists too much. I mean, he pretty much tried to end their existence. But what he was saying is that ultimately we're all Americans. We believe in the system that was created by the 
by our generation to serve this republic. And for those who are against that system, well, you know, there are only a few of you, you know, you're marginal. Uh, you know, free free speech and free debate will show the folly of your ways. And I think that's that's created a, a, the kind of remarkable system that, again, has changed quite dramatically since those days, but has evolved within that system that was eventually that was originally put in place with some with some tweaks here and there. Uh, you know, the 12th Amendment obviously being a big part of that, uh, but has has survived an incredible amount of turmoil, growth, you name it. Uh, I, I think the American political system is one of the geniuses of this country, one of the real miracles of our success. Right. And when you think about throughout history, oftentimes succession crises would lead to civil war. And if not the civil war, there would be some sort of power grab and one guy would either be sidelined or killed. And so when you think about the country creating its system in a world where stuff like that still happened, it's remarkable, this stability. Uh, One thing is that there have been a lot of changes. You said that the system has evolved. And one of those changes I think that the founding fathers had Mm -hmm. was that they viewed the electoral college as kind of a, it it would basically be uh, this elite class of citizens that would be chosen by the people, but they themselves would be delegated to make the selection of, of president. They would make an independent choice. And we've we've moved away from that. We've become a more democratic representative system. So how well do you think that the current system balances the founders' intentions with the system we have today? And some of that goes into the Electoral College, right? The Electoral College has changed slightly because now these members in the Electoral College vote for whoever. They're sometimes they're bound by law, so they're not these independent people. They're they're like slots now. Um, but how much of that is still present? How much of the founding fathers' vision is still present uh, in spite of these uh, evolutions in the system? Yeah, I think some of that transition happened almost immediately after the creation of this country. I mean, I, I think. Some of this transition, I mean, even the idea that you, you just the regular person is going to be voting for the electors, I mean, that has been in place uh, for a long time. Uh, it, and to a certain extent, it's made the kind of indirectness a bit moot. I mean, I think that was some of the some of the early criticisms of the Electoral College. It's just interesting that they're always brought up in debates in the modern era. So, well, you know, such and such person uh, criticized the Electoral College in the 1820s and 30s. Andrew Jackson among them. They really criticized the federal nature. They didn't criticize the fact that the electors uh, represented the states in their capacity. The criticism was usually they didn't like the indirect nature. They didn't like the fact that somebody else was voting for you. And that was particularly dramatic, especially after the 1824 election that got thrown to the House of Representatives, uh, where you basically had the House choose who the president was. It had nothing to do with the actual popular vote at all in this country, and which set off a lot of chaos and set off a lot of Jackson's criticisms of the Electoral College, uh, which, again, it was focused mostly on the indirect nature. The federal nature, I think, which to a certain extent is kind of the primary part of what the Electoral College is and has been, I think has more or less stayed intact. I mean, I think while the system is much more democratic than it was initially conceived, electors were chosen by by the states. I mean, the state you know, legislatures were, were choosing electors. That, that system changed very quickly in the early days of the Republic. In fact, by the 1840s, I don't think there was a single state that still had that old system intact. Uh, but I think the federal nature of it is still there. I mean, the states do conduct their elections in their individual capacities. You still have it weighted toward uh, the states, which creates a lot of anger too, because it's not exactly what people think of. They think of, oh, you know, our whole system is based 
necessarily on one man, one vote. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, we still have a system that's that's weighted toward uh, a federal one where the small states get a slight advantage, though I, I think that's a little bit overblown. Most of our elections, if you win most of the big states, you're going to win the election no matter what. Um, I think the Electoral College has done a very good job of adapting to the growth of this country. And I think it's served us very well having these separate elections being conducted in state after state in such a large, diverse country uh, has been incredibly important. I, I think even when you when you look at the 20, two, 2000 election, which you had a recount in Florida, which you had a lot of chaos, I can only imagine what that would be if we simply had one national election and you had to do a recount of every vote in this country. Yeah, uh, it'd be I think terrible. The it'd be terrible. It'd be, it'd be, we may still be counting those votes. Florida, uh, but and, nationwide, 300 million votes, right? Or uh, whatever, 150 million votes. Yeah. Incredible. incredible. In fact, I think one of the, the one of the great things about the Electoral College that, you know, I think to a certain extent, it does prevent some of these electoral irregularities becoming a national crisis. I mean, there has been significant portions of our history where there have been states that where the vote has been questioned, where the vote has been suppressed. I mean, you had that in the 1876 election was a complete mess. There was fraud taking place all over the country. At the very least, those electors were held to the states that they came from, that, they, that a state kind of went one way, even if an entire vote of one side was suppressed. Uh, it didn't ultimately change the election. I mean, what's incredible is, you know, Abraham Lincoln, when he won uh, the election, won with about 30 seven thirty eight percent of the vote there were a lot of southern states where abraham lincoln you couldn't even vote for abraham Lincoln. he was not on the ticket uh states were literally taking people off the ticket uh and that kind of stuff happens a lot I and mean, that's been a part of our history the electoral college to a certain extent mitigates that because the number of electors you get is the number of electors you get you're not simply counting up the total number of votes so the individual state governments taking steps to disenfranchise people has has ultimately been mitigated by that as far as our national elections go. And the, and the presidency obviously being the ultimate example of that. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. So you mentioned 
during the Jackson elections, the implicit criticism uh, or the criticism was that it was done indirectly. It wasn't done democratically. Is that an implicit criticism of the founders for making a system that was too elite and not democratic enough? Or is, do you have to look at it from a context perspective? How do you and, uh, you know, if you're someone that wants to continue what the founders created, how do you reconcile that evolution to a more democratic system? Well, I think one of the, the one of the big worries that they had was that there would be simply abuse of the electors that they were simply because a lot of other systems, there have been briberies, there had been other ways to try to manipulate elections. They thought that an electoral college of esteemed individuals essentially indirectly select the president would be more capable of sustaining those kind of attacks on the political system itself. Um, I think the electors were never necessarily meant to be like a college that would gather together and discuss who they're going to select as president. They were meant to be creatures of the states. Now, a mind of their own, I mean, if something happens between the election time and the actual, you know, bringing the president into office, the electors are supposed to have judgment in that matter. I mean, we, we haven't really seen this tested in American history. Um, but there certainly could be a crisis in which, let's say, the president dies uh, after he's elected. You know, what's going to happen? You know, leaving that to the electors is potentially a, a way to solve that rather than just going to the chaos of another election, uh, you know, having the electors decide that. I think that there are still stopgaps that exist there with retaining the elector system, uh, though I would say certainly their role has been more marginal through time. Most of them tend to be party people. They tend to be people that are simply loyal to the ticket, no matter what, as you said, a lot of states even have uh, rules regarding you can't simply switch your vote uh, if you want to. Uh, so, you know, I think that's part of the the natural evolution and process of, of the Electoral College, that it didn't exactly specifically turn out just the way the founders saw it. it doesn't mean that it, it came very close and it, it wasn't quite successful. And I think it's actually it's proven that you know, it's test over time. We've only had one, one serious presidential crisis, maybe two in our history. One, of course, the secession of the Southern states in the 1860 election, uh, which was the most dramatic case. You could probably say 1876 was another test of that system as well. But I think ultimately over time, that system has done a remarkable job of, you know, balancing the interests of the country, of selecting the, the next commander in chief, of making sure that you know, Americans believe in that process. I think it's done, if not, a, it certainly has not done a perfect job, but I think it's done a very good one, one that I think it would be a mistake to simply overturn that system, uh, you know, overnight. So if, if a candidate wins a state, they essentially win all of the electoral votes for that state. How did we get that system? How do we get that process? And I, I think I, I've heard people criticize the college as something that seems a bit arbitrary. I've, I've, heard uh, people criticize if they live in a state that is is blue and they're, you know, that's Democrat and they're Republican, their votes don't count, vice versa, if it's, you know, the state's Republican, but they vote Democrat. How did we get this winner-take-all system for the states? It's it's the way for states to kind of maximize their power in, in elections. I think that's been a big part of this, why it is just winner-take-all and to a certain that has been the criticism, you know, states maybe should go to a more proportional system. A few states have done so. Uh, Nebraska, Maine have done so. And they've split, often split their electoral college votes. And you could even say, maybe that's actually a better system. The only thing is, 
our system allows the states to make their own judgment as far as how they're going to create their electoral system. They maximize their own power within that system by having it be simply winner take all. It, it really maximizes the desire of a president to win that state. It makes it a big prize. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. the massive prize. It, yeah. it, and it, to a certain extent, it reinforces, you know, one of the many reasons why we have a two party system in this country. Uh, it's a natural process of our system. You know, it's not like people kind of sometimes say, well, you know, it's like corruption that we have a two party system. It's a natural part of how our system was designed to develop. It wasn't necessarily seen immediately uh, by the founding generation or universally supported. But I think very quickly people came to realize that uh, a party system, even a two-party system, uh, had a lot of advantages uh, within that. And it's worked very well. Yes, there are a lot of countries throughout the world that have a more parliamentary system where they have many parties, uh, where they have kind of sometimes many of them have fringe parties that actually gain a lot of seats. Our system tends to kind of smooth over a lot of those fringe elements that exist in every system because if you're one party or another you have to appeal to a large base of people you can't just have a narrow slice of the population hope to win you have to find a way to gather together a lot of different americans of different interests a lot of different backgrounds and that's i I believe that's a strength of our system it's not a weakness i think it's mitigated some of the i think extreme parts of any party and allowed us to create governing, not coalitions, but simply a governing party that has its chance. If it doesn't work out, they're voted out of office. I think that's worked very well. And I, I think when you think about what the founders of the system they devised, whether it's the Electoral College or any other part of the government, there was an element of, okay, we're going to create the system. We're going to do it to the best that we can. But we also know that experience will help us know uh, what's the best way to actually run the system. And so when it when it comes to the Electoral College, they put in these safeguards. They wanted a system that created a national, uh, nationally supported president, but they also knew that experience would show its flaws and they could adjust accordingly. So uh, many of them might have been open to kind of the greater democratization of the system that, that happened because that was what the people wanted. So it really kind of depends. It's It's kind of balancing their intent, but also with what what the experience shows is the best way to do it. Yeah. I mean, some were much more than the democratic side. I mean, James Wilson of Pennsylvania was very strong on the sort of democratic side, you know, in our elections. But I look, I think there was even a pro I mean, there's a process whereby through experience, we have to change that system. We can, right. I mean, there, there was, which we've done, right. which we have done, including our electoral process very quickly, especially after that 1800 election where you had the confusion as far as, you know, the presidency and vice presidency were selected on the first two vote getters. I mean, if you have essentially a party system, uh, you had the problem where you have two guys who are tied and then who becomes president. And that was that created a lot of chaos when you had Thomas Jefferson, and Aaron Burr. You know, these are two guys that are supposedly running on the same ticket. And then one guy decides, well, you know what? I think actually I want to be president, <laughs> which you right. know, Aaron Burr decided, which created the chaos of that election. Right. They immediately changed that so that, you know, afterwards, then you had, you know, you vote essentially for the vice president and the president on the same ticket rather than that system before, which, you know, created the chaos, which undoubtedly would have created far more chaos down the line, especially as the party system developed, you know, having a president, vice president be two different parties. I think there are a lot of people who kind of suggest that, well, you know, why don't we go back to that? But I have to say, in the long run, uh, it creates a lot more tension between the office of the presidency and the vice presidency. You know, when you especially nowadays when the president is expected to kind of 
lead the charge as far as policy making in this country. One can only imagine if you know the thoughts that well the president's policies could entirely flip based on you know health crisis or any other thing. I, I think that would create a lot more chaos in our system than the one that we've developed since that amendment was passed. So yeah, absolutely. There are there have been positive changes since the creation. I don't think the founders thought that their system was perfect. I think almost all of them were unhappy about one thing or another when they created the Constitution. But ultimately, it does have a lot of methods whereby it can change either through the actual process of, you know, passing a constitutional amendment or even through the evolution, because there is a lot of leeway as far as how states and how, you know, our country actually conducts its elections. Right. And one thing you notice comparing our system to the systems of other countries is that ours is just so much longer and it's so much more involving. And we have so many debates in the primary process. And then we have three debates in the presidential, the general election. And I think part of it is you have this system we have, electoral college, et cetera, that, that its intent is to create a nationally supported candidate who has support from different parts of the country, but also... You have a system that is just so exhausting that the, I remember Tony Blair once said that anyone who wins the presidency cannot be stupid because they've gone through such an exhausting process. So part of it is just the grueling nature of the job, of, of trying to get the job, hopefully will ensure that the person that gets it has really gone through the gauntlet. And and th- that in and of itself is seen as a virtue, right? That if someone is willing to go through the, the most miserable slog of a campaign, then they hopefully they'll be prepared to be president. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I would say this is actually, again, one of the, the real distinctions between modernity and, say, America, the 19th century. You know, presidents today are expected to be on the campaign trail nonstop. I mean, now it's years long process. Whereas in the 19th century, that was actually seen as sordid. Like, you know, if you're out there saying vote for me, that might be a disqualifying factor. I mean, even the idea of a president, even a guy saying I want to be president would be seen as, oh, that's that's unseemly. Unseemly, Now, of course, elections themselves, you know, the surrogates were very enthusiastic and they were I mean, the campaigns in the 19th century, every bit as wild, as dramatic. In fact, I would say Americans were probably even more engaged because you didn't have, you know, the mass, you know, you didn't have television, you didn't have sports culture that developed yet. I mean, sports and, you know, politics were like one of the same people were rooting for their team and they were very focused uh, on the elections. They were very excited. And so, it got nasty. You know, it got nasty and back it got then too. very nasty. I mean, it was, there was some brutal stuff. Fake news. You know, re- fake news was rampant. I mean, and you could even hide things more in those days because right. after all, what happened in one state wasn't necessarily, you weren't necessarily going to get word to another state. So, you know, there were there were presidents who were running on a, a wildly different platform on state to state based on their surrogates that would appeal specifically to that state. I mean, I know that uh, during the 1828 election, a lot of Andrew Jackson's surrogates, you know, tried to portray in South Carolina that Jackson was, of course, committed to the, the principle of free trade. It was very important because, of course, you know, it's a, it's a region that produces a lot of exports, uh, you know, cotton, things like this. But in Pennsylvania, his surrogates said, no, no, Andrew Jackson, here are this quote that we have from 1824 showing that he's a strong supporter of American industry and, and having some tariffs. And that worked in those days because a lot of times there wasn't a national media to even keep tabs on it. People didn't right. really pay attention. A lot of issues were very local. And many people didn't even really know who, much about who the presidential candidate even was. They 
never seen him before. They'd heard little about him. Uh, so, you know, that has dramatically changed in modernity. I mean, where you see, you know, ads all day long, you see, you have debates, we have this, that, you know, how did the president handle when this, some person comes out to all these things have become enormously important in modern elections that may have even shocked and surprised uh, the founding generation, of course, couldn't have imagined the kind of technological changes that have happened today too. Right. Now, when people look at the Electoral College, one of the things they criticize is the fact that the swing states are the ones that get the most attention. Everyone else gets ignored, shafted, knowing that there's no perfect system. The implicit criticism of that is that every state should expect to have the same amount of attention. Knowing there's no perfect system, how do you address that particular criticism? Or is that a fair criticism? Yeah, I, I, I think it is very interesting. Now, obviously, a president can't go to every person in America and make, you know, an individual pitch. That's just, you know, it's amazing what they do, given, you know, the limitations of the human body and time mm -hmm. and all these kind of things. It's actually incredible. I think it's actually worked very well. In fact, I think the criticism that, um, you know, hey, you know, these, you know, some secure states get ignored, only the swing states get paid attention to, I would say, well, what are those swing states? I mean, you know, every generation, it seems, there's a new set of swing states. I mean, and, and candidates who have ignored states that they thought were secure that ended up deeply, I mean, the 2016 election to me is one of the, you know, one of the stories is simply that there were a lot of states that were considered, you know, Democrat, that had gone Democrat for an incredibly long time that were solidly blue that suddenly went red because you had, you know, a party system sort of in transformation. You had a political candidate uh, who kind of went outside the boundaries of what how the Democrats and Republicans uh, have been speaking outside the ideas that have been at the primary focus of those parties for a long time and dramatically changed uh, an election outcome. I mean, I think, you know, the electoral map is something that is not nearly as static as people think it is. Uh, you know, nothing really is permanent in American politics. Things change constantly. And yes, there are a lot of so-called state state safe states that get ignored or somewhat ignored for a long time. That often ends up costing presidential candidates very dearly when they take those those votes for granted. They don't focus on the so-called safe states uh, and think that, that, well, I just got to tip the balance in a few places. Things change very quickly in this country. The news changes very quickly. The issues of the day are constantly revolving. Uh, they're constantly different, uh, especially in the modern era. So the way I see it is our system has actually been incredibly dramatic uh, and evolving over time. Again, I think it's it's an important part of our system where presidential candidates, one way or another, are going to have to find a way to appeal to a broad base of Americans. What those broad base of ideas is going to be is something different every four years. I mean, it's different almost every year as population shift, as the country grows, it changes. Uh, but it's ultimately worked very well in, in selecting presidents. And, you know, and our parties, and our whole system is geared uh, toward that. So, yeah, could it could there are things that could be changed that could be made here? Probably. I mean, I think that, you know, having a more proportional system would probably be a more accurate gauge of where the American people are. But to a certain extent, that can't happen because, you know, it, there is so much discretion left up the states, which is an important part of our system. So uh, I think it's a, it's an imperfect system, but it's a very good one. And I think it works for this country. Right. Now, one of the big events of elections are the debates. We have the presidential debates. We have the vice presidential uh, a debate, one of those that happens every four years. How decisive are presidential debates? Should we have them? Are they good? What do they add? It's kind of part of the whole process. And every time 
something like that happens. There's this there's these kind of regular events that happen for a president, right? The State of the Union every year, uh, those debates. And some people kind of look at these things and say, you know, it's just a big show. It's predictable. We already know everything about the candidate. Are they useful? Do they really give us a good gauge of the candidates? So what what do you think? Is that a good thing? Can they be improved? You know, I think the way that the modern presidency has evolved, I think they're becoming a, a kind of necessary part of the system. I mean, this, this is something that, I mean, the presidential debate wasn't even something until 1960. I mean, you didn't have presidents standing there. Or, I mean, people think of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, but that was a, that was a Senate election, I mean, essentially. I mean, uh, yeah, I think a lot of our debates have become, there's a lot of fluff that's involved in debates. There's a lot of you know, kind of nonsense as part of it, but I think they become a really important part as far as informing American voters uh, in a, a culture that is very, you know, are, we're directed toward the, the visual medium, you know, television, the internet are incredibly important to how we get our news and how we get information. Uh, as part of the modern system, it has become very essential. I think it was remarkable that in 2016, the first debate between Hillary Clinton and, and President Donald Trump, there was 84 million viewers. I mean, you can't get that kind of viewership with almost anything. You know, that shows that a lot of people do care very much what happens in those debates and how they assess their presidents, whether it's assess them rhetorically, assess their appearance. You know, one could say it has made some of our presidential elections much sallower than they were in the 19th century, where people barely even knew what their presidential candidate looked like in many cases. Uh, but, you know, that does follow the trend of American society as well. I mean, there's just reality that people want to be able to size up the president in person, we can no longer literally walk up to the White House and knock on the door as, as they could often in the 19th century, which is a crazy thing to think about and assess who the guy was. Uh, but it is an important part of the American presidential process. And while it hasn't always proven to be the decisive factor, uh, there have been there have been presidential elections where that confrontation, that one on one debate between two candidates has been very important, has been essential and has, has allowed certain candidates uh, to thrive where they otherwise wouldn't have, uh, you know, even down to the, you know, the primary debates. I mean, I think very dramatically, you know, when Ronald Reagan won uh, 1980, uh, the New Hampshire primary debate, which, you know, turned into a total chaotic session where they had technical issues and, you know, Reagan grabs a microphone, microphone says, you know, they try to cut him off, says, well, I'm paying for that microphone, Mr. Green, showed Americans that, oh, this is a guy who takes charge. You know, this is a guy who shows leadership in a time of crisis. Well, he looks like the better fit than George H.W. Bush. So, you know, I think some of the moments that have happened in these debates have proven decisive where people are not just examining the policy preferences of a president, but who that person is, uh, somebody who they expect to have enormous amount of responsibility. So it's a modern contrivance, but I think ultimately it's been an important one. What I'd like to see, I mean, Given, I think like many Americans, I would like to see some changes to the actual debate process. Uh, but, you know, maybe something more in the style of those Lincoln-Douglas style debates, I think, where you have a more free form debate between two people rather than the moderators who ask oftentimes good questions, but I think sometimes very biased ones. Um, I think it would be I think it'd be very exciting to see two presidential candidates squaring off against each other, no moderators, just two people talking and discussing the issues of the day. I think that'd be great to see in 2020 and beyond. I would, I would really like to see if there is one change, I would really like to see that. Well, one thing I remember in college when my 
professor showed us a, a video of it was the first time I ever saw prime ministers prime ministers questions in in the UK and and that kind of has a more free flowing and at times pretty rowdy and um, sometimes irreverent tone where people are really attacking the prime minister and the the leader of the opposition and and it, it's something sometimes people say oh that'd be great to see in the United States where things are are a lot more controlled and candidates are debating the 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 length of the table and all these little details that will make their candidate look better um and it, it just seems a little bit more manufactured and that that's one criticism sometimes people want something a little bit more genuine uh and i i think even in the the show the west wing very popular show when they have a presidential debate uh between the candidates to succeed um martin sheen's character and they kind of have that, you know, forget all the rules. Let's just have a free-flowing conversation. So I think there's always been kind of that desire to do that. But at the same time, uh, both candidates have a lot more incentive to hold to those rules and to try to control the system and control what everything looks like. Yeah, I, I think no doubt about that. I mean, I think there are ways to set up a debate format where you do have kind of some set rules going into it. So it's not literally just the two guys haven't at it. Uh, but I, I would like to see a system where you don't have the middleman, so to speak, of, you know, the moderator. Just, you know, allow two people, you know, obviously people we expect to know policy, you know, people, all these different things. Just say what they're going to say. And we can assess that. I mean, obviously, you know, Lincoln and Douglas were able to do it in a grand fashion. Maybe we can't expect so much in, in 2020. But I think the American people would really like to see that. And it would undercut any, you know, idea that you know, the format was biased or that, you know, one candidate was favored of the other. You would simply have two people, they enter the arena, you know, let the American people decide. I think that would be very exciting to see. Uh, and, you know, it would be exciting. It would be interesting to see, you know, the people who would actually, you know, choose to do that. In my opinion, if you are running for president, you should be able to stand, you know, in that arena for an hour, two hours plus and be able to just, you know, discuss the issues of the day. Sure. I think that's an incredibly important thing. Sure. I don't know. This might be an apocryphal story, but I've heard a story that uh, President Kennedy and Senator Goldwater, who they were friends going back to their years in the Senate, uh, prior to the 1964 election, had talked about having kind of a Lincoln-Douglas series of debates where both men would incumbent President Kennedy and Senator Goldwater, assuming Goldwater would win the nomination in 64, which he ended up doing. Um, but prior to that, they talked about flying together around the country and just debating, you know, stopping by at, a, at different cities and localities and just start debating the issues. And I, I don't know if it's true. It makes a great story. If if that was what they planned to do, that would have been pretty cool and creative. It would have been more interesting, I think, than kind of your standard debate. Um, you know, unfortunately, we'll never know if they, they were going to do that and how it would have played out. But you have different ideas of how to make the system more interesting or, or whatever. Yeah, I, I think it would be, I think it would have been set a great precedent had they actually gone through with that. And it's such a, I think it's a great idea to me at, at least. Um, it would be, it'd be great to see that. I mean, I don't necessarily think that we're going to do that anytime soon, but Hey, you know, things change all the time, especially given, you know, how communication changes in America. It's an almost perpetually evolving process uh, you know, we've gone through basically people not even knowing what a president looked like, except for, you know, maybe they'd see a painting or something like that, too. 
you know, all the transitions of, of radio and going through that transition to suddenly television, now the internet, and, you know, who knows who knows what's going to come next uh, when it comes to these things. My guess is that, you know, campaigns and parties will, of course, be completely on the up, and, and we'll, we'll find ways to secure advantages through those new mediums that are created uh, over time. And that's, look, that's, that's a part of, that's a part of what we are. We're Americans. We innovate and we innovate when it comes to, to politics and elections uh, like we do with everything else. So I'm, I'm sure there'll be many changes, you know, even the next few years, I think we're going to see a lot of different changes in the American political system. Right. And uh, I guess just wrapping up one thing, and you, you probably uh, have seen this as well in studying history. One thing we could say, and whether it's re- recent history or relatively recent or going back to the founding of the country, is that uh, elections have always been crazy. There's always been a lot of angst. There's always been uh, great divisions. Uh, whole parts of the country have left over the result of an election. It happened once. And so I think uh, as we head into the presidential election this November, we can know that we can take heart that our country has survived so many different scenarios, so many divisive years. And ultimately, we've come, th- we've moved forward from those years. And, and obviously, we hope the same thing will happen regardless of the result this year. Yeah, I, I, I mean, remarkable resiliency from the election process of the president. I mean, I, I, I do find, I mean, I know it's kind of taken for granted in the modern world, but it really is something remarkable that was, you know, set in motion by that founding generation. I'm not even sure if they knew it was going to pay off in such a big way. And even when it, you know, we had the most dramatic, you know, departure from that, which is the 1860 election, which, you know, some of the headiest days in the history of our country, you know, that office of the presidency proved to be instrumental in carrying union victory and saving the constitution and the country itself. I mean, the, the office of the presidency, I think was really tested by that war and showed, you know, how invaluable it is, uh, how invaluable it is to the future of the Republic, especially in times of, of absolute crisis. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, yes, there've been a lot of transitions and changes that I think a lot of people are upset about. think have made our, our system worse, uh, but it really has stood the test of time greater than, you know, most republics through history, which have had often a very short shelf life. Uh, you know, we should very be very thankful. Uh, you know, I mean, how many other countries throughout the world? I always think of, you know, our poor southern neighbor of, of Haiti after the creation of that country. You know, how many coups have happened in their history and how many, you know, I mean, a coup was like almost like an election there for large parts of their history. And how much chaos and misery that creates for any people. Uh, is immense. Americans haven't had to suffer through that. We've had a very law-based system and had a very stable system. So even a lot of the discussion, like, oh, you know, the, this year is going to be the craziest. Elections are always crazy. And, you know, somehow Americans always figure it out at the end of the day. Uh, you know, our, we really do have a genius for politics, even though we don't think we do often. We think sometimes that our system is just the worst in the world. It's a total mess. But I, I think we do it better than anybody. And I think that's something we should all be Uh, very much inspired by and very thankful for. Jarrett Stepman, we appreciate you coming on to our show. Uh, As I said earlier, your podcast, uh, you're the co-host of The Right Side of History. So be sure to check out that podcast and check out his book, The War on History. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. 
We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Please visit evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.